a lot of small businesses are just leaving money on the table, which is margin. You better have someone who's kicking the tires on all these hundreds of tools that are out there. So strategy is the thing that really should set the edges of the pitch. It should define what that pitch is and put a goal right at the end of it. Everybody was about how streaming would never have advertising, and so they threw away the opportunity they had at the beginning. From Orion X, this is The Marketing Podcast. Marketing has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs. Hi, everybody. Marketing Podcast, episode number 38. Happy New Year to you all. This is Shaheen Khan with Doug Garnett, and we have a very special guest for the very first time. How are you doing, Doug? I'm doing well. All right. Do you want to do the honors and introduce our special guest? Certainly. I want to introduce Sam Braley, who is out of the UK. And we have talked with him before, back when we did a couple of video casts a few years back, and have always stayed in touch and really found what Sam has to offer in terms of marketing, just stupendous, really excellent. And in particular, he has excellent background with small and medium-sized businesses. And I'm looking forward to, to a really good conversation today. Brilliant. Sam, how are you? I'm good. I'm very good. Sam, do you want to say a few words about what you do and the kind of clients you have and all that and how people can find you? Yes. Yeah, so primarily I'm on, on LinkedIn and that's kind of where I share everything that I do. I'm currently working on my website, but like a lot of people, it's one of those things that ends up being at the bottom of the list, but it is something I'm working on. In terms of my work, I generally just call myself a marketing consultant, but to me, that means someone who does stuff as well. And I say that because I work with smaller businesses generally. And I think there's always a bit of a myth with small businesses, which is that people think, well, that must mean startup or like five staff, but actually a, a small business, it can be quite large. Larger SMEs have multiple sites. They have 200 members of staff. They have turnovers in the millions. And I've worked with a, a real range of different clients from those one-man bands all the way to large consultancy firms. And really, I'm a generalist marketer. I kind of see myself as someone who comes in and tries to work with my clients to understand what the gaps might be in their marketing and then basically just help fill them, whether that's through consulting, whether that's through upskilling staff internally, teaching them how to do things or facilitating planning days or doing campaign planning or market research, customer research. And some people have said, you can really do all that. And I'm like, well, yeah, I can do that stuff because a lot of this is the basics applied and it makes a huge difference in terms of making sure that smaller businesses are actually taking the right steps on their marketing journey and then moving away from just the daily drudgery and the daily grind of doing stuff and hoping something works to working out something that's more more grounded and more based in effective planning and delivery, which makes a huge difference. And it's little things that, that make a big difference. That's great. I've got some clients I want to talk to you about. No, I'm just kidding. It's, uh, <laughs> it is such a valuable service. And I think a lot of times we'll probably get to talking about this large, so much marketing discussion and theory and the like is dressed in the trappings of large companies that it's really hard for a company of 100 or 200 people to understand what they should take from it and to really envision that. So I think that translation you do is really invaluable. Yeah, to echo what Doug was saying, one of the things I've always enjoyed and valued from what you post is how real it is. 
And we're going to come back to the small and big business differences in a second. But maybe as a way of introducing that, Doug, you could tell us what we have in the cartoon of the month or week. Yes, it's cartoon of the month. In this month, we have a boardroom looking place with windows and about six people sitting around a table. And there's a big card up front that says marketing strategy session. So obviously, this is a company earlier in the year deciding what they should do for their marketing strategy. And written underneath that is, please, oh, please buy our product. Please buy it pretty, please. And the leader is saying, let's go with it. We've never tried a groveling approach before. I found this quite funny because I think if we were all honest, we've all felt this way. I mean, none of us have ever used this as a strategy, but there have been days when it's like, God, maybe if I grovel, business will grow. Yeah. yeah. Sam, you have any comments on it? Yeah, this is no no criticism, but the first thing I saw when, well, first thing I thought when I saw that was, so basically sales orientation, right? Right. Which is, <laughs> so, so please buy now. And, yep. and uh-huh. that is, that's endemic, I think, in smaller businesses and large businesses. I think there is so much crossover, especially with that cultural stuff. If there's a cultural bias towards sales, then I think often that kind of forces the hand of marketing almost to be that sales support function. Right. And then, like you say, you end up with those strategy days where it's just a load of people kind of saying, what can we do to help sales do their job? It's not proper marketing. <laughs> That's exactly right. Actually, I my class, I taught my first session of my class this year yesterday. I was, I was asking a general what is marketing about? And was one of the students' answers was marketing hands customers that are ready to buy to sales. I'm like, that's all? I mean, we contribute in that world, but there's so much more to it. My mental model is a two-by-two two as usual. So it's small, large consumer business. And one of the things about marketing strategy that I believe is part of this is you really can't do a marketing strategy if the business strategy isn't quite clear. Mm-hmm. And while bugs can happen everywhere and maybe business strategy is there and marketing is in, but usually what I've found is that when marketing is struggling to set strategies because the business strategy hasn't quite worked itself out. And I referenced a few episodes ago, there was a paper that Doug, you mentioned that talked about all manner of strategy and how mm-hmm. they all need to mesh together. Yeah, that was a Roger Martin. I think what Sam's suggesting here is this really should say the sales strategy session. Is that fair, Sam? Yeah, that, I would say so. And, and it's the old orientation thing. And Mark Ritson said it, I think, ages ago, but I thought that four by four of product-oriented, sales-oriented, advertising-oriented, and then there's market-oriented. And, and to me, I think that's a good way of summing up the culture of, of an organization more so than the planning, the rigid planning and justification. I think it's a lot of cultures do just fall into that sales hole, which is, well, if we just have more salespeople, then maybe things will work out. Don't you think there's some challenge in that, which is as a company goes from being tiny, maybe five to 10 people to 50 to 100 people, when they're tiny, sales just kind of dominate discussion. And therefore, it's hard for them to know when to shift to be less panicked about sales and more able to look at the long term. Yeah, I think that is a bridge that people do eventually need to cross. And I think a lot of the challenges that marketing faces in terms of doing marketing properly within smaller businesses is that, like you mentioned earlier, so much of the frameworks and the processes and planning and recommendations are built around larger businesses that have large teams that can spend the time and money developing those processes. And they can almost live life in the slow lane. So they can say, well, we're going to spend three weeks planning. 
then we'll do three weeks of this and then and it's kind of sequential and i think what the reality is for smaller businesses is they need to do things in tandem so really that sales team the data that sales team has is like gold dust but people don't know it's gold dust so some of the work that i do especially with like really early stage businesses is try to help them understand the first thing they need to do proper marketing is to collect that data that customer information from day one because when you grow a bit and you've been in business for a year or two you then have a really good solid time series of customer data you've got an idea of what's happened and then you can actually start to do marketing properly because you can review it you can build on it you can get an understanding of who your customers are you can do things like segmentation and that's where you kind of need to start really thinking about doing proper planning and not just doing stuff and saying right let's test things initially that's fine i would never say to a a business that's just started you need to do a marketing plan because it's like well they've just started being sales oriented in that way is a good thing because you need to get the sales to validate whether or not what you're doing is going to work anyway Mm -hmm. but to to build on it and do it properly that's when you need to get marketing involved And, and even things like pricing like a lot of smaller businesses they'll do cost plus pricing models where they kind of just have a random arbitrary margin and they want to meet that margin, but there's no rationale behind it. There's no research done. There's no development done on pricing internally. There's no thought behind it. So a lot of small businesses are just leaving money on the table, which is margin. Do you find that smaller companies need to be convinced that they need marketing to begin with? Or are the folks you work with already signed up to that? They understand the value of marketing? I think it's a two-sided thing, really. So I'm very conscious that how I promote myself, the aim is to kind of pre-qualify people is in if I'm clear about what I do, then the people that come to me know that marketing is important and that they need problem solved and I'm there to help them. However, I'm also aware that there is always an education to these things. And I think a lot of businesses, they do have their heads in the sand about whether or not they need marketing because a lot of them just think marketing is comms and that's what they think it is. So really it's going, well, no, it's not just advertising, it's everything. And it's often hard to kind of summarize what marketing is to a smaller business in a couple of words. But often I'll say, well, it's like the opposite of accounting. It's how you you make revenue. And when you've got a PL or any breakdown, really, you'll have one line for revenue and then a ton of lines for costs. And then really, that's a good way to frame it, which is you've got a really good idea of what your costs are and what you need to manage, but you've got no idea what that revenue is. You don't really know anything about your customers. You don't really know anything about the market generally. You don't know much at all. All you know is that people are buying it and giving you money and that's it. But you need to know more than that to be competitive. Mm. Well, I've been talking more. What is What I've found useful is to talk about how do you do things today that not only affect today, but also prepare you for next year. If we're working with small businesses who don't have a really long timeline, I mean, Coca-Cola is talking 10 and 20 years out, but small businesses are talking about this year and next. But if we miss out on those things that we could do this year that would help next year's revenue, then we've made a mistake. And that's another way I've started to find people can kind of break into the idea that marketing is more than just sales support and social media, which seems to be the default these days. Now, something that came out of one of you guys' posts was the change in strategy. Mm -hmm. And when do you know you need to change strategy? And when is it that it looks like a desperate move because it sort of betrays how you didn't get it right, etc. I want to introduce an idea that is coming out of complexity, and which is that the idea of emergent strategy. Uh-huh. In business school, we're taught that strategy is defined from the beginning. You kind of sit in a room and spend time and then invent the strategy. And sometimes that works, and it's not wrong at all. 
On the other hand, especially for small businesses, there's real value in what's called an emergent strategy, which is you may not know the answers really to begin with. So you may need to start off in a direction. But as you go, you watch it and you begin to see strategic elements emerge that you can weave together into something powerful for you in the long run. And it turns out the companies of all sizes use emergent strategy at different points. Volkswagen, there's a great paper from Minsburg in the late 60s where Volkswagen had to go back to three years of strategic wandering and then a strategy emerged out that was Audi and put the company back on a solid footing. So I think as we think about small companies, especially strategy is something that to some degree will need to emerge and evolve constantly as you're going along. Yeah, yeah. I think the same. I mirror what Doug says there. So deliberate strategy sounds great because it it tickles that part of your brain that says we're in control. (laughs) And I think that is what a lot of businesses want. They like sales, for example, because they know that if someone makes a call and then they get an inquiry, that salesperson has brought that lead in or that customer in. It's quite definite. It's quite definitive in terms of its effectiveness and efficiency as well, because it's pay that person, they bring in these customers, they've paid their wage and they make us money. That's nice and easy. But as we know, it's not always easy. So with things like emergent strategy, that basically is what I try to encourage smaller businesses to do, which is you're trying to build a strategy as you go. And then that's completely different from thinking about being agile, which is often just scattergun approach where you just test and learn forever. Really, it's about, okay, well, we think we have an idea of who we are. We think we have an idea of where we want to go with this. We've got our aspiration. Now, what we need to try and do is make the reality match with that aspiration and find that sweet spot that works for the business. An emergent strategy is is really the only way to do that. And I think an SME would be kidding themselves if they just had sit down, write a plan, and they say, this is what we're doing for the whole year, and it's not flexible. It's never going to change because that's that's not going to happen. Like it might sound, it might create the illusion of control, but the reality is what you're really trying to do with strategy for smaller businesses, you're not trying to create that A to B to C to D. What you're doing is you're saying, right, you've got a football, you're on a pitch right now, and someone's trying to tell you to play the game. You've got a ball and you've got a field, but that's it. No one's told you really what you're supposed to be doing. So strategy is the thing that really should set the edges of the pitch. It should define what that pitch is and put a goal right at the end of it so you have constraints in terms of where you can move. So you've got the freedom there to move about and do things and test things, but there are still some constraints about what you will and won't do. And I think that is what helps, especially small businesses to understand the value of proper marketing, which is that, oh, okay, so we know who our customers are. We know what the market's like. So now we've got this available information. We can make more informed assumptions about what we're going to do rather than just complete guesswork. So when you cross those boundaries is when the flag should go up that says, okay, maybe we have a bigger problem because something is now changing that is a head scratcher. I mean, this is really referencing the pivot to video commentary that was my motivation to bring this up because everybody heard that and said they don't get it. They don't have it right. Yeah. So I think pivot to video is, that's a good example of something that is not strategic. (laughs) That to me is very much a, we don't know what we're doing. So let's do video because that's what other people have done and it's worked for them. That to me is a good example of something that is not strategic because it's not contextual and it shows a lack of understanding as to who those users are. Twitter is not a video platform. It's just not. That's not what it is. Yes, there are videos on there, but that's not its primary purpose and that's not what users really use it for. An example of emergent strategy, perhaps that someone like Elon could have taken, would be to say, well, I really care about freedom of speech because he's always banging on about that, Uh not rightly or wrongly. 
and you say, okay, well, if that's what you want to do, then surely you want to turn Twitter into like a, or X, into a new media news powerhouse mm-hmm. and build on what its strengths were. So I know that Twitter was kind of a really valuable resource for PR and journalism because of that instant news. Like often you could get stuff on Twitter before you could get it anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And that's a strength of the platform. So that would be something that you could build a strategy around because it's something that's kind of already saying, hey, look at me, I work, this is what I'm good at. And it's something you can almost own. It's like everyone trying to be TikTok. It kind of reeks of desperation. It's not a strategic thing. It's just saying, look what that guy's doing. I'm going to try and do that which unfortunately is how this pivot to video thing with Twitter comes across to me. It just kind of doesn't make sense. I mean, partly I was thrilled or humored yesterday to find out that there actually is a Wikipedia page about the pivot to video strategy. And in most media organizations, it's known as the admission of failure because that's, it's the, well, nothing else works, so we're going to pivot to video. And why would it be seen as a thing to do? Well, there's a, I don't know, there's a lot of, something about video that makes people think that maybe it's going to save them. And I think what a lot of people forget are the weaknesses of video. For all of its strengths, video is linear. Video is not something you can consume quickly. You have to follow the path of whoever put the video together. There's a bunch of weaknesses to video as well that people forget. But I was going to say, too, on this pivot to video as a strategy, I often wonder if stuff like that isn't the result of trying to do pre-planned strategy too early. And I think we do see it in people who are seeking funding have to go in for that funding with a well-worked-out strategy with detailed plans for exactly how big their market will be. And yet they don't actually know what their market is because they haven't ever put the product on the market. So they don't really know necessarily who's going to buy it. So in some of my work with startups, real kind of venture-funded startups, you'll see them take one path as a serious strategy and then all of a sudden shift the pivot is shift to some other path that's entirely different. But Somehow they think it's strategic instead of relying on an emergent approach that just says, hey, we don't fully know. We're going to find who finds this most useful and build on that. Yeah. So the other notion here is when you're kind of too late for whatever new strategy that you want to have. Mm-hmm. And like Sammy were saying, it's not a video platform because we already got a few and it's not going to compete with short format video either because we got one of those. Mm-hmm. And that reminds me of this other link that, Doug, you shared when somebody was tallying up the losses of everybody who was trying to compete with Netflix because they were there first. Mm-hmm. So there is this sort of a first mover advantage, winner takes all kind of a reality too, right? Yeah, and I think strategically, and Sam, I really be interested in your thoughts on this. I think, but strategically, I always dislike copy strategies. They just never, they never work. But the question always for a company is. What's unique about you? So for Twitter, Sam was going down a good list of, wait a minute, what's unique about Twitter? Twitter has always been a really great news ticker. That's kind of the way I look at it, is that people put out little press releases, and everybody's watching it for news ticker stuff, and then they write about it from that. And so your first step, to my mind, in a strategic process is, who are we? And then build on your strengths, not go... Hail Mary pass into video. Yeah, I agree with that. And as you were saying that, Doug, I thought, well, Twitter could basically have a positioning statement that is as simple as saying front page of the internet. Uh And they could own Uh that quite Uh easily. But unfortunately, they don't take quote unquote marketing seriously because I think, again, they conflate it with advertising. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that's exactly right. I think you do see people that struggle with marketing and Elon is one. There's been need for advertising at Tesla for various elements of its business. 
but I think that somehow that just conflicts so much with his ethos. I worked with Google once early on when they really needed TV to advertise some of their some of their new things they were building. And what I was told by the internal person was, yeah, you're right. That's exactly what we need to do. But I can't raise it because this is Google and nobody will let me raise it. I lose my job if I raise it. Hmm, interesting. They did end up doing that, though, no? Yeah, they did eventually end up on TV, but they missed some really interesting opportunities early on with stuff that they had developed that they never told anybody about. Just going back to the Netflix example, I think first mover advantage, I'd like to add a caveat to that, which is I don't like the, the usual startup cliches, which is like, oh, we've got to get first mover advantage because what that kind of insinuates is that if you get started first, you will be successful. But I think actually the reality of Netflix was that there was a huge degree of complacency from all the other media companies. I think they kind of viewed Netflix as this like cute platform thing because it took years for them to actually do anything about Netflix existence. And then I feel like it was the thing where it reached a critical mass that they actually started to prick their ears up and say, we need to try and compete with Netflix now. Mm -hmm. Don't know what you think. I think it's that. I think it's also that they, they looked out there and said, oh, we're losing. They saw what they had potential to lose as streaming became more prominent. And I guess it was the usual land grab of, uh oh, open territory. Everybody run after it and spend billions trying to get there. And they spent billions. And the reality is Netflix still owns the market for the most part. And Amazon has a lot of people, but that's because they all subscribe to Amazon Prime anyway. And Disney and everybody else, they're struggling because They went off after the landmine, but I think the gold that's there is less than they expected. From a consumer point of view, it is really as simple as a lot of people's wallets are pretty stretched right now. Mm -hmm. So to expect people to pay for multiple streaming services, it just doesn't make economic sense for anyone. So a lot of people will just stick with what they've already got rather than be sold something new. A lot of people will just stick with Netflix because they've always had Netflix. They're yep. not going to go, I'm going to get Disney as well. Maybe if they've got kids, they will. But you know, you're not going to go and get Netflix and Paramount and everything else on top of that, unless you've got a decent disposable income, you're not going to do that. And I think the good thing with cable back in the day was Cable was still relatively accessible to, to lower earners in the sense that if you have two people working full time, you can probably afford cable. But I think now with the proliferation of these individual subscription services, rather than being bundles, it becomes kind of economically impossible for the average person to justify that, especially when people kind of are flicking between content so much now like you might end up watching two hours of netflix and then watch an hour of paramount or whatever and then an hour of disney and before you know it you go hang on a minute i'm paying like x a month for like an hour of tv that's insane well i always predicted that on streaming tv was going to end up costing more than it used to on cable and yet of course when streaming came out everybody talked about how it was going to be so much cheaper but the economics never made sense sometimes you have to look at fundamental economics and say wait a minute, does this add up? Along with that, if you will, and I'm going to, this is a gratuitous gig, but along with that, everybody was about how streaming would never have advertising. And so they threw away the opportunity they had at the beginning to establish advertising formats and show creation. So that now as streamers are putting ads into stuff designed for streaming, they interrupt programming so badly that I just can't stand them. There's an ad, it, but it doesn't come at a commercial break. It just all of a sudden... Mid-sentence, it shifts to an ad for insurance. Yeah, yeah, that's something that is, again, it's people forgetting where they've come from 
in mm-hmm. essence. So I have plenty of DVD box sets of like great TV shows that I loved when I was younger. Like I've got Stargate SG-1 on DVD mm-hmm. and you can see the ad breaks mm-hmm. because every yes. 15 minutes there's a turn to the camera and then a bit of a swelling music and then it right. fades to black and then comes back up. And yeah. that's where the ad break was. But mm-hmm. everyone understood the context there. And I think that's the problem with streaming is it seems adding in the ads in the way that they've done it is just so amateurish. It's just kind of forcing it in, like you say, like mid-sentence is ridiculous. Well, the other thing you brought that up a few times, Doug, is how expensive it is to get digital right, that it's Mm -hmm. not the panacea that some folks may assume to be. And if you want to do it right, next thing you know, it becomes like a real business and you can lose money only for so long. So then you just throw in the towel. I think a bit of that is going on too with some of these competing systems. Yeah, I guess we get into these places where people just figure, well, if we throw enough money at it, somehow profit will emerge. And I think that we've suffered a couple decades of that becoming a prominent business strategy. And of course, the latest one is with AI, which we were talking a bit earlier. That AI yesterday, and you read this stuff in more detail, but fundamentally OpenAI came out and said, yeah, but if we can't use everything copyright and trademark free, then we can't produce our, our platform. And my thought was, wait a minute, business fundamentals are if you can't afford to make it, then that's your problem, not the country's problem to solve for you. Yeah, absolutely. I think for AI, because data really is the raw material, It is the cost of goods sold, essentially. And if you are relying on free raw material, well, that may not quite be the business model. (laughs) (laughs) And I think sooner or later, data is going to want to be controlled Mm -hmm. based on the specific usage. Mm -hmm. And maybe all data can be grandfathered because we didn't think enough to put checks and Mm -hmm. limitations on it. But people are going to want to do that with their new data. And if you put digital rights management on top of data, like you can use it to read it, but not to memorize it, not to feed it into an AI. Should we move to the meme of the week then? Let us do that. Yeah, yeah the have... meme of the week came out. Stanley Johnson, who uh, is at Brand DNA on Twitter, pushed it along. And it says that uh, two people describe ChatGPT as mansplaining as a service. And honestly, I can't think of a better description. A service that instantly generates vaguely plausible sounding, yet totally fabricated and baseless lectures in an instant with unflagging confidence in its own correctness on any topic without concern, regard, or even awareness of the level of expertise of its audience. There's a lot of truth to that. Now, as I believe in AI, I think it will get better. And I think it's something that we have to take seriously and all. But it is also very true that it cannot operate without a whole lot of data, that data is going to have value. And that value isn't just the revenue and the profits that these companies get, but also their valuation, right? If you're using my data and you're going to be worth $100 billion, yeah, maybe I have a problem with that. Yeah, I think that's fair. What do you think, Sam? Are you uh, in on that one? I think AI, like with all things, it can be good and bad. My concern with AI at the minute, especially with the companies that are doing it, is like Shaheen just said, it's another company that's effectively scraping other people's information, other people's hard work, and making money from that without anyone else getting a cut. Mm-hmm. That to me is the ethical concern above anything is it's just not fair. And I feel like in the last 20 years, we've had a bit too much of that especially with growing inequality in the Western world, which seems to come about like, well, hang on a minute, all these people are making billions, but where's that money coming from? And it feels to me like a lot of it comes from the pockets of people that don't know they're being mugged yet. 
so I think I'm all for the safety in place so mm-hmm. that things are done ethically and people aren't just doing it to make a quick buck. That may be quite cynical, but I think it's just based on what I've seen before. There's a reason to be cynical about these things. And then in terms of the accuracy of these platforms, I think that's a big fear of mine, which is that I've already seen people and talked to people who said, oh yeah, I use ChatGPT to help me write my marketing strategy. And I just thought this person should be fired immediately because they're showing that they are intellectually lazy because what they've done is they've just basically had like a an AI consultant that's just scraping data that isn't necessarily correct, probably isn't correct, and just copy and pasted stuff. That to me is the concern from a business world point of view, which is AI going to actually free people up to think more intelligently or is AI just going to make a lot of slackers jobs easier but they will produce worse work, but people will sign it off and say it's great because it was produced by AI. It's a bit like the whole big data thing. It, it stinks of that to me, which is like, well, we got all this data and it says this, so I have no culpability. The data's telling us this. So it's the same with ChatGPT. Well, ChatGPT told me that this is what we should do this year. Mm-hmm. And that to me is just something that I've seen and experienced firsthand. Wow, wow. That is, is a concern for me, which is, well, hang on a minute. If you, can't, if you can't do it yourself, you probably shouldn't be using tools to kind of supplement that. If you use AI to supplement your existing knowledge, that's great because you can understand the limitations of AI because you yourself have deep practitioner knowledge. But what is bad is that there is a possibility that someone might come into a business and go, right, I'm just, I don't know really what I'm doing. So I'm just going to use chat GPT to do it for me. And that's my worry is that people do things like that and put things in there like chat GPT. How do I deal with this HR concern? Tell me how I should deal with this person. That's the kind of thing that I think kind of dehumanizes people because it's it's like relying on a, on an app to like teach you how to do things that you should really think about yourself. So this is a good lead into what AI strategy should be for a marketing organization, marketing department right now. There's a lot that it can do, and there are ways to use it properly such that it accelerates things. How do you guys see that? Well, I don't have a lot of specifics to offer other than AI is merely a tool. And I think that's one of the things really confused in the discussion right now is we're not seeing it as a tool to assist in things like is it a good tool for interpreting data? I don't know that yet. I don't have my own hands-on experience with it to know that. But, you know, something like that, okay, that might be useful if I'm using it as a tool. The problem is this point what Sam was making when people turn around and try to use it as everything to write the first draft of the marketing. Yeah, whatever. yeah. But I don't know. What do you think, Sam? I think it does have uses because like you said, it is a tool. And and with all tools, a good example of that is marketers who love HubSpot, so many of them will just use HubSpot. They will default to that and say, oh, it's our HubSpot strategy because that's what they know. Uh-huh. And that is kind of putting that tactical tactical cart before, before the horse. And I think that AI runs the risk of that as well, which is people relying on AI to do the job for them, to kind of prompt them into doing the job mm-hmm. rather than the other way around. I do see value in it and I have used it myself, especially when I've asked it to do tasks that are really efficiency-based tasks. Like, what is this formula? I've got an idea of what this formula is in my head that I want to create. Oh, I can just go and ask chat GPT, which is please make me a formula for Excel or Google mm-hmm. Sheets using these criteria. That's really helpful. And I think it can be used as kind of a, a loose kind of bounce back in terms of if you're not sure about something, you can ask it to challenge you about things. But all of that really, that tool there is to prompt your own brain to figure stuff out in a way that is more professional, more accurate to, to what you're trying to do in, in marketing. Like I wouldn't say, I guess in summary, 
I don't think people should use AI to do marketing. I think they should be using AI to challenge themselves, maybe, if they've got things that need to be challenged, which is asking an AI to challenge your assumptions, perhaps, asking it to work things out with you in terms of mathematics and those kinds of things, those data things. But I think anything that's kind of a bit more fluffy, so let's say you're working on brand strategy, I don't think AI can help with that because it, it won't, like a good example would be an AI is not going to understand the culture of the organization that you work in. And the reality is that good marketing is often determined by the culture of an organization. If you have someone that believes in it, you can do it properly. If you have a CEO or whoever who doesn't believe in it, it doesn't matter how good you are, those plans won't come to fruition. So AI will never have that understanding of those human factors. That's the biggest thing. So you just have to work within the constraints of what AI can do and recognize, like you say, Doug, it's a tool. It has its limits. It can't do everything. That's right. I think also it's a tool just to make it explicit in the sense that it needs supervision. Mm -hmm. It's not autonomy. It's Mm -hmm. not a colleague. It's not somebody you can outsource things to or to delegate to or to... It's something that generates stuff that you need to check and need to know enough to check it. Yes. You need to be able to arbitrate because it is liable to make stuff up. And if you can't tell the difference, you're going to really have egg on your face like that lawyer did in front of the judge because the AI had made up a case that never existed. Mm -hmm. And the guy had referenced it in his submission to the courts. That's like bad news. You can lose your license for things like that. So so it absolutely needs that kind of constant supervision. And as such, it seems to me that it would be a good thing to give you an outline because it can just remember things that maybe you've and it's like efficiency thing, like you said, Sam. It's also a good thing for like a second draft, maybe not the first draft, but hey, take my first draft and then see what you can do with it in terms of either making it more succinct or see what's missing. But then you have to you have to check it and check it again. Yeah, I think, Shane, that's what I was saying, but in a more clear, explicit way. I think that's perfect. Well, <laughs> it needs to be, you need adult supervision of your toys, essentially. <laughs> That's right. I think as I'm listening to this too, I think it's like one of the things we all have to get clear about with AI is it doesn't understand. No. I mean, if you think about the human idea of like, do you understand a situation? You you use that term about the company. Well, AI actually doesn't understand anything. It looks at patterns and matches things against past patterns. And that can be really helpful to us as a tool. But I think that it's dangerous in the sense that it can appear to people so human-like that they assume it has the human ability of understanding. And, uh, right. It right. doesn't. AI doesn't. It just doesn't. And maybe it someday it will in 30 years, but certainly for all of the foreseeable future, we've got to never assume that it understands what it's saying. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and there's a, and there's a reason there's tons of films about the, the dangers of AI. <laughs> you know, The Matrix being one of them. <laughs> You know, we, we, <laughs> we're not saying we're going to end up with the matrix, but, you know, we do need to, to recognize that, it, like you say, it is a machine. It's, it's not a human being. It's logical, but it's only logical. Mm-hmm. Now, I think if you're a sizable marketing organization or an agency, then you better have someone who's kicking the tires on all these hundreds of tools that are out there. Mm-hmm. because you really do need to know how to use it, when to use it, when not to use it. Your clients are going to ask you about that. It could help you. It could help the client. So you need to be able to speak authoritatively, and that requires that you have allocated some bandwidth of some members of the team 
to be able to become current experts at, at this area. And it's fast changing, so they need to continually be checking it. I believe that really is good advice. I've been half-jokingly saying that eventually we're going to have driverless marketing, mm-hmm. that the data just manages its own portfolio, and maybe someday we will. But in the meantime, you do need to be able to arbitrate. You need to be able to say whether something should be used or should not be used and not just go with whatever you read. Well, and I fully agree with the let's explore it. I think where where concerns get raised is I'm beginning to see CEO comments to investors. It's one of those prove how hip a company you are, or prove that you're on the cutting edge statements that exaggerate far beyond probably what even the company's actually doing with AI. Right, right. Now you shared another link, Doug, where there was a glossary of terms of sorts. Oh, yes. And, and, you know, maybe we should conclude with that. And there were a couple of funny ones in there. Uh-huh. Yeah, so Modern Retail published a, a list of the 2023 edition of the Modern Retail Dictionary, the real meanings behind the most popular industry buzzwords. And uh, yeah, there's a whole bunch of them. Personally, I think the first one that caught my eye was our authenticity, which means our ad copy doesn't use capital letters. <laughs> <laughs> or there was the Barbie collab, which said we launched pink this summer. Sorry, Sam, what was it? I was just going to say, I, I like this article because the first thing I thought was, did Ryan Warman write this? It's very Ryan. But yeah, it's good. I mean, I, as a principal, I detest jargon because of exactly this. I feel like it's so easy to use it and hide behind it. <laughs> did you have a favorite if you have the link up? I like decarbonize. That makes me laugh. We now use ocean freight. that <laughs> <laughs> Good. Yeah, there were some really good ones. The other good one was community, the comments on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Or when they talk about profitability, what they really mean is don't ask us about our finances last month. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, definitely a good one. All right. This was a delight, Sam, to have you. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes. We can start winding down. Any comments before we do that? No, it's just been it's been great to to talk and just there's a lot of topics we covered and we could talk for another hour quite easily about this stuff. But yeah, no, it's been really good. And we should. Doug, for your comments? Oh, it, this has been quite fun. First guest, really appreciate your uh, taking the time to be with us, Sam. And it's quite fun to connect back up. Very much so. Definitely got to do that again. And with that, uh, we can close this episode. Thank you, everybody, for listening, as always. And delight to start the year with you, Sam. Appreciate it. And until next time, take care. Super. Thank you, guys. All right. Cheers. That's it for this episode of The Marketing Podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.